This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 58 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is talking to people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. I had the same experience as you. I worked in a mental institution, late 70s, early 80s. So I totally related to what you were talking about. You had 3.2 million views, by the way. You realize that? Yeah, it's really shocking to me because it's really just a depression lecture, but really surprised but pleased that that many people have found it helpful. So once once you've got it ready to go, send me the link and I'll be happy to post it on my website. That's the voice of my guest this week, Dr. Michael Yapko. He's a clinical psychologist, marriage and family therapist. I first came across Dr. Michael Yapko when I stumbled across his video called Keys to Unlock Depression. Why skills work better than pills? His first exposure to psychology was through a local mental institution, which reminded him of the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. To say he was shocked was an understatement. In fact, he was angry, and he decided he was going to dedicate his life to improving people's mental health. There is a route out of depression, and it's obtaining practical skills. Dr. Yapko is going to show you how. I started by asking why he was invited to Australia and what was the purpose of his presentation. It was sponsored by the Australian Psychological Society, but this was part of their new program of bringing psychology to the general public. And the idea was to provide a lecture about depression to anybody who was interested. And what was pretty remarkable was with pretty minimal advertising, the whole auditorium was filled. We had to schedule a second one as well, which also filled. Incredible. It is. From your point of view, the first thing I got from it is you were so pragmatic in the way you approached depression. And it, it, for the first time in my life, it made sense. It sure. kind of made sense what you were talking about. So I've got a couple of questions for you just to start us off. Okay. Who gets depressed? Everybody. If you are capable of a mood, then you're capable of a mood disorder. <laughs> and you know, the, the ups and downs of life we all face, the adversities of life, we all face the people we love die, the pets that we care for get hit by cars, the new car that we save a year to or two to buy gets smashed the third day we own it, take our car in for a car wash and a flock of birds flies over it 20 minutes later. You know, there, there's no escaping the big and small adversities of life. And so getting down, feeling down is pretty common experience for everybody, but not everybody recovers as quickly. Not everybody puts it in perspective as quickly. And so once it starts to persist and and actually become a way of living, you know, then we'll term it depression and then uh, it really needs some treatment. I actually loved what you said there, a way of living, because it, it is very much a choice, isn't it? Although we don't think about it as a choice, but you firmly believe it is, do you? Well, you know, that kind of minimizes a little bit. You know, nobody would choose to be depressed. Nobody likes it. But what happens is, and and what is true about what you're saying when it's a choice is, 
how many different ways are there of looking at any event in life? You know, you can, you can, somebody you love dies and you can be wrapped up in grief or you can celebrate this person's life. You can miss them terribly and feel like every day it's about loss, or you can continually focus on the things that they contributed to your life. So it's, it sounds in a way trite, but it is actually true that your perspective is negotiable. And all you have to do is look around you to see other people who view it very differently. But, you know, the, the simplest way I can say it is people who are prone to depression think things and make the mistake of believing themselves. And it becomes one of the most important skills that you can learn in life, how to step out of your perspective long enough to examine, is there a truth to it? Is there a reality to it? And you, it's easier to see, I think, in other people. It's easier to see when you are looking at people who have extreme political positions, for example. You can say, gosh, how can anybody really believe that? But that's the point is people do. People can get wrapped up in belief systems that have very little to do with what's really going on. And that's what makes our thinking vulnerable. So it's a pretty sophisticated set of skills to be able to step outside yourself long enough to find out, is there evidence for this? Is this really true? Is there another way of looking at this? Is there a way that's going to better enhance my life rather than diminish it? Let's just pick up on some of the things that you just said there, which was really interesting. It's basically the story that we tell ourselves. That's what I'm surmising from what you've said. I'm being very simplistic there. Mm -hmm. But as human beings, we do tell ourselves stories to cope with things or to rationalize things. Is that correct? And not, and not just cope with things and rationalize with things. That's true. But every time we generate an interpretation, a story about what we think is going on, it, that's what gives us definition to our position. You know, so somebody steps on your foot and instantly you have to make some kind of a decision. Did this person do this maliciously to hurt me or was this person just clumsy and stepped on me? And if you decide that this was somebody just being clumsy, it's really easy to forgive them and say, no worries. And if you think they did it maliciously, you're tempted to want to punch them in the face. Absolutely. Two very different interpretations and reactions to the same event. And, you know, one of, of kind and generous acceptance and the other of anger and, and even violence. Every story leads us to make some determination, uh, some meaning out of what's happening. And human beings are meaning makers. We are constantly trying to understand the world around us and why things happen the way they do so that we can kind of figure out how am I supposed to react to this? How am I supposed to handle this? And I love what you said there. We're, you know, we're, we're story makers. We're, we want to kind of make it, you know, so that we can pass on that information. That's one of the reasons of doing stories. Well, that's certainly part of it, passing it on. And th th that's both a blessing and a curse, because if the story that you happen to pass on is one that's damaging, you're not really helping anybody. But if you're passing on stories that empower people and help people discover choices and just help discover their own strengths and resources, then you're doing a good thing. I want to ask you something about the time that we're living in at the moment. And you touched this on your lecture, your Australian lecture was about social media and interacting with social media and how that's really kind of 
impacted probably socially as how we interact as, as human beings, as animals in the human world. Um, but what in your experience, because I know you've been practicing since the mid 70s, mid to late 70s, if I've got that right. Yeah. Have you seen a sea change of, of perspectives and how people deal with things and how depression, how's that curve gone with depression? Is it, is it gone up and it's, we're at the peak here and then it's going down? Or what do you think? Well, it's not a matter of opinion. You know, the, the, there's a field called epidemiology and epidemiologists study the prevalence of disorders, not just depression, all disorders. What's the rate of cancer in the world? What's the rate of AIDS in the world? What's the rate of, you know, pick a disease, multiple sclerosis or anything else? And so, you know, each country that has the financial resources to do this is constantly evaluating health of their population. And that's part of how research funding is done. Diseases that are more common get more research money than diseases that are less common. Uh, But the World Health Organization in particular is a very strong organization for measuring and evaluating health care around the world and health issues around the world. And so in 2017, the World Health Organization declared depression the number one cause of human suffering and disability on the planet, uh, crossing international boundaries. And it's been steadily escalating. In 2004, depression was number four behind heart disease, cancer, and traffic accidents. And the prediction in 2004 was that depression would rise to number two by 2020. And in fact, it reached number two in 2013 and now is number one. Now, what we've also seen, of course, is with COVID, the pandemic has changed the picture pretty dramatically. Because in the last two years, the epidemiology shows that the rates of depression have at least doubled. Some data suggests tripled. So the, the rates of depression have gone up markedly. And for understandable reasons, people have been socially isolated. They have been economically hit. People who have lost their jobs, uh, people who have been forced to be at home, kids at home, their work schedules, their school schedules, the disruptions on so many different levels have really had a terribly negative impact on people. And so the the rates of anxiety and depression have both gone up a lot in the last couple of years. And I can predict, sadly, but it's a safe prediction, that we are going to be hearing the echoes of this pandemic from a mental health perspective for at least the next decade. That's pretty uh, worrying, isn't it? When you actually look at that, because really in a way, I'm going to relate it to how I viewed life when I was young and I was in a completely different continent, you know, as a young kid in the UK, you know, people used to say, you know, just go for a walk around the block. If you're feeling a little bit blue or a bit down, go and see Auntie Ina or go and see Auntie Jane or go and see Uncle So-and-so and go and do something, you know, and it was almost an art of distraction, but there was a kind of a web of support there, you know, a social support yeah. that we didn't realise existed. It, it was just organic. We were there. So in your opinion, what what has really led to this? Is it is it this lack of social interaction that's really catapulted it to be way, you know, up higher, you know, and be at number one? There are lots of different factors. There's no doubt that the internet has played a significant role. 
uh, you know, th- it's a blessing and a curse. There are wonderful things, obviously, about the internet. You know, your pod, your podcast is one of them. The ability to bring information and perspective to people, but the internet is also an, an echo chamber. Uh, people can find some pretty wacky things on the internet. And if they don't know how to distinguish what's true from what's not, you know, here in the United States, we've got how many tens of millions of people that don't know how to distinguish between real news and fake news. And so people get caught up in perspectives that don't have any legitimate base to them. There isn't any evidence for them, whether it's really strange cures that people suggest or really strange actions that they suggest. And people don't have the kind of support that they did. You grew up around people and people could show an interest in you and want to help you and want to support you and give you some advice. But, you know, these days you've got a brother that lives on that continent and a sister that lives on that continent. And meanwhile, mom and dad are on a jet tour of the Orient and they'll be back in three months. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just not the same as it was. Times have changed and there's no there's no illusion that we're going to go back in time. You know, it's, it's great to talk about the good old days, but we're not going back there. And now the question is going to be, how do societies adjust to these changes in the way that we relate to each other? How does the mental health profession adjust to the reality of today's circumstances? Uh, one of the biggest changes that has happened because of the pandemic is that mental health services are now being delivered across the Internet. And of course, one of the most important research questions is, if people have their therapy sessions online, does that diminish the value of the therapy session? Is it less effective? And so this has garnered a tremendous amount of research attention. And at this point, there are at least two dozen really good studies that have been published, all concluding pretty much the same thing, that you lose something about not being in the same room with a therapist, but you gain something by not being in the same room with a therapist. And so the the data have shown us that telehealth works and works well, and it's an important thing for your listeners, for any listeners to consider that if they're struggling in any way, get help. This is one of the things about depression is it is very responsive to good treatment. I have on my website uh, uh, a blog article that people can read about how to choose a therapist that provides some input. But the important thing is for people to get the help before things get really bad. You don't have to wait till you hit rock bottom. If you know that you're falling, do something sooner rather than later. And you don't have to leave home. You want to talk to a therapist. There are therapists all over the place now that do telehealth and it works and it works well. The data are clear about that. I wanted to ask you a couple of things that you just mentioned there, which is really important. Why is human beings, why do we put off getting help for depression? You know, this is not just putting off getting help for depression. This is human nature. You know, we don't react to things until they're on fire. We, we know that the bridges are decaying. And we can't find the money and we can't find the money to fix them until a bridge collapses, 60 people die, and then all of a sudden we find the money to build a new bridge. You know, th- this is the way humans are. They, they, you know, they, they don't want to deal with something, and so they minimize it and they distort it and they move it to the back burner. And it isn't until things get pretty extreme that people react to it. 
it's that way in relationships. You know, your spouse is telling you this isn't okay with me. And then a week later, they tell you a little louder, this isn't okay with me. And then a week later, they tell you a little louder, this isn't okay with me. And then four weeks later, they say, I'm out of here. And then you say, what? What happened? Why didn't you tell me? And you say, I've been telling you, but it wasn't convenient. And that's that's one of the, the things that I've been so strong in and the things that I write about and teach is prevention is so much better than treatment. You know, when I was in clinical practice, as I was, I'm retired now, but was in clinical practice for almost 40 years, that was one of the things I saw constantly was the opportunity for prevention was there, but people missed it because it came disguised as inconvenience. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Dr. Michael Yapko. I next wanted to know from Dr. Yapko's point of view, have you felt there was still a cynical view of depression within our current society? Well, you know, the the uh, view of depression as an illness is kind of falling by the wayside the more that we learn about it. And of course, the pandemic itself shows us how much People respond to changing social conditions and environmental conditions much more than, you know, but you know, your, your point stands that when people think that somehow this is about personal weakness, or I can delay it and I'll deal with it later, these other things take precedence, uh, that's when, you know, we're, we're putting the opportunity to take care of it aside. And that's literally a passive choice to wait until it's really bad or wait until you're, you know, feeling so awful that you can barely cope. And all that does is make life more difficult. I'd much rather, you know, get involved with people when things are starting to go bad than when they've reached rock bottom. I don't want people to accumulate more pain than necessary, more failures than necessary, more frustrations than necessary. I would much rather people recognize I'm not doing well now and I'm not going to be making any better decisions until I get somebody to help me uh, think these things through and, and, and do better. So if you're in a situation where you're vulnerable to depression, what are some of the signs that we should be looking out for? And then I want to flip the coin over and ask you a question. Okay, we've figured out what the signs are. What are some of the solutions? So let's start with the first part first. What do we need to be aware of? You need to be aware of how you feel and how you look at things. And you need to look at the quality of your decisions. You need to decide whether the things that you're doing are working for you or working against you. I mean, you're the only one that knows how you feel. The, the tests for depression are not particularly good or reliable. There's no biological test for it. There's no blood test or urine test or brain scan that's going to reveal depression. It's a very subjective quality of experience. So, you know, I'm more general in that regard that uh, I would simply say, you know how you feel preponderantly. If, if most of the time you're doing great and every once in a while you get down, well, welcome to life. But if this is a persistent kind of thing that negatively impacts you, the people around you, your ability to function, your performance on the job, your sociability and likability, if you end up making bad decisions that make life worse, if you're using drugs and alcohol to get by, you know, because you just can't stand the way you feel, if you have suicidal feelings, thoughts, you know, the, the, these are all the indicators that you're just not doing well. And they range from mild, obviously, to severe. And then 
what it highlights is the skills that you need to learn. You know, the, the thing about treating depression is as life gets more complicated, it requires more and varied skills for coping with things skillfully well. And so what those skills are will differ from person to person. Some people need better coping skills, how to cope with the stresses of life. Some people need better problem-solving skills so that they don't keep stepping in the same pothole on the road of life. Some people need more social skills, how to get along with people, how to build relationships that are healthy and positive and supportive, especially since we know how important relationships, good relationships are for mental health. And, you know, these, these aren't necessarily skills that you can acquire on your own. They may be depending on you and your ability to learn and, and, and task yourself with really working these things. You know, my most popular book, hands down, is a book called Breaking the Patterns of Depression. And it's in book form and audio form. But the th I think the reason it's so popular is that there's nearly 100 different strategies in there for if you're not good at this, here's a way of learning it. If this is where you're weak, here's a way of getting that skill. And so it's, it really is a very practical self-help book. Most of the things that I write are for other professionals, but I did foray into the world of self-help with a couple of my books, Breaking the Patterns of Depression is one of them. Another is called Depression is Contagious. You know, so people need to be realistic about themselves. And, you know, how long do you suffer before you decide, I don't want to do this anymore? And I'm suggesting wrap it up sooner rather than later. Okay. You know, you're depressed. You know that you don't feel right. This is not a normal feeling for you and you need some help. What are some of the practical things that you can put in place that will help you start to climb out of that hole and get to see a different perspective in life? First things first, we have plenty of evidence to show that an educated client outperforms an uneducated client. And by that, I mean a client who's educated about depression. Well, the very first stop should be your physician's office to get a very thorough physical and report openly what you've been dealing with. Can there be a biological basis for the depression? The answer is yes. Could it be about medications you're taking, a disease that has not yet been diagnosed? Uh, there can be reasons for it. Now, the probability is that's not true. For the majority of people, it isn't a purely biological phenomenon, but it can be. So that's the first step is get a thorough physical, be open with your doctor about what's going on. Then secondly, as you start to get educated about depression, to be realistic about these things. You know, the most common form of treatment is the use of antidepressant medications. And antidepressant medications are okay. Uh, you know, they're, they're able to provide some symptom relief for at least half the people who take them, certainly not for everybody. And they don't work, even when they do work, they certainly don't work right away for most people. So it's, there's a certain persistence, tenacity you're going to, you would have to have. But you'd also have to be realistic that there are, that whatever you think medications can do, it's never going to be a pill a day keeps the depression away. As I said, it can help you manage some of the symptoms of depression. Uh, the, the agitation, the insomnia, the low energy, but it's not going to teach you coping skills, problem solving skills, social skills. Uh, it's not going to help you come to terms with bad things that have happened in your life. It's not, you know, the, the, the drugs can only go so far. 
And so it's important to have realistic expectations about what they can and can't do and to not think of medication as the sole answer. You know, it, it, just taking a drug isn't doing yourself a favor. Just prescribing a drug, for those of you that are physicians and therapists, is not doing your patient a favor. You know, it's, it's also got the highest rate of relapse of any form of treatment. Yeah, that's, that's one of the ways that psychotherapy absolutely outperforms medication in terms of creating an environment that allows people to learn the skills that not only help them get out of depression, but prevent further episodes. And uh, that's, that's a great strength. So why I emphasize psychotherapy so much with somebody who's really knowledgeable about depression is just because of the evidence. You know, this is, again, it's not about my personal bias. If you know, if the medications worked great all the time for everybody and they were safe, I'd say take them. But, you know, they, they have limitations and it's important to be realistic about that so that you're not hoping for a miracle cure that requires you to do nothing. You know, if you want to get past depression, you're going to have to do some things. You're going to have to be active in the process. Therapy is done with you, not to you. And to help you acquire the skills that you need is a learning process. And it's going to require some practice. It's going to encourage you to do some things you haven't done before, which means a little bit of discomfort as you try new things. And, you know, the promise is that when you acquire the skills that you in particular need, the things that have been missing that have made you vulnerable, you're going to be a much happier person. And you're going to be glad that you took the time in it and invested the energy in it. Fantastic. This program is all about also letting people know about the soft underbelly of our guests. With a great name like Dr. Yapko, where does that come from? Give me a little potted history of what your background was and how that influenced you to get into the area of medicine that you're in. The name Yapko is Polish. It means apple. And uh, I am born in America, born actually in Virginia. All my early years were spent playing baseball. And then when I went off to college, uh, I had the opportunity to do a volunteer experience. And uh, there were a lot of different places to choose from. You could work in a prison. You could work in a psychiatric hospital. You could work in a medical facility or whatever. I chose a psychiatric hospital because the only one I'd ever seen was in the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's right. So I was curious about it. So I volunteered and I was appalled by the conditions. Um, everything you saw in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at this particular facility as a state-run facility was true. It was just a terrible place. And it made me what I would call therapeutically angry. It made me feel like these people are suffering. They're being ignored. They are being warehoused and nobody's helping them. And that made me mad. And so I thought to myself uh, that here's, here's something I could care about and I want to learn more about it. So I started taking courses in psychology and discovered that I really did have a genuine interest in it. And it was all about clinical. There are many different branches of psychology, but my interest was clinical, being able to provide treatment to people. So I went to University of Michigan, which is the, at the time the second-ranked college and university in the country, a really excellent school, excellent education. And, you know, it, it takes a long time. It's many years of, by, by the time you get your bachelor's degree, then your master's degree, then your PhD, 
and then spend 3,000 hours getting supervised experience and then taking an oral exam and a written exam in order to become a psychologist. You've, you've paid your dues and you've learned a lot along the way. And I did. And uh, at the time when I was going through my clinical training, you know, depression was so evident everywhere and nobody had any good treatments for it. And so rather than pick something obscure to learn about, I wanted to learn something about the most common mood disorder on the planet that nobody was really treating very skillfully or effectively. And so it, I, I came to it with a fresh pair of eyes and a fresh perspective and just enough rebelliousness to say, I don't want to do what everybody's been doing when it's been basically ineffective. And so it, it launched me into a whole different direction that at the time was considered pretty off the beaten path. And now it's mainstream. I mean, all, all the stuff I write about, talk about and teach is now what everybody's talking about. It just it has it has stood the test of time and expanded the field pretty dramatically. And I'm not the only one. I mean, there are a number of people who have been colleagues of mine and, and mentors of mine who also were very uh, uh, rebellious in, in rejecting the traditional kinds of let's talk about your childhood and let's talk about your dreams and really shifted the focus to skill building. And it, it totally changed the way the therapy is done and how treatment is performed and how it's measured in terms of success. I want to say, thank goodness you took that path. Thank goodness you were determined. And I know the Polish are a very determined population, actually. That's the one thing that you always know about them. They, when they make their mind up, they're going to go for it. But you were a visionary. You had forethought. You could feel it, which was wonderful. Yeah, it's, uh, thank you. I, you know, it, it, it didn't feel all that visionary at the time. Uh, it just felt like me being judgmental that people were doing therapy in ways that clearly didn't work. You know, that had, going through the training in long-term therapy of analyzing your relationship with your mother and analyzing your relationship with your father, and then getting out into the real world and nobody was interested in doing that. You know, in the, in the real world, people were saying, tell me what to do. Tell me how to, how to deal with this. And you sum that up so well. Tell me what to do. Just give me a direction, you know, just yeah. give me a, a, you know, an olive branch that I can grab hold of and, and let me get on that journey. Exactly. And that's what I love what you're doing. I just adore it. Exactly. You're right. You know, people need practical advice. If they knew what to do, they'd be doing it. You know, nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to be depressed. Nobody likes it. Nobody enjoys it. And so that, that's really the challenge. If people knew what to do, and I can, I've confirmed that a million times over, slight exaggeration, but when I ask, well, I can ask people directly. So if you were going to take a positive step to help yourself, what would you do? And people just look at me blankly. They don't know what to do. And that, that is it's just such a practical thing. How can I help people discover what works for them? And, and the, you know, there are many pathways into depression, and there are many pathways out. What works for one person doesn't work for someone else. Their dynamics are different. But for this person, it's all about how bad their relationships are and how taken for granted they feel or put down they feel. And for somebody else, it's all about the stresses of work and trying to cope with a perfectionistic boss who tells them that no matter what they do, it isn't good enough. You know, I mean, everybody's got a different pathway in. And so it's, that's an important thing to appreciate, too, that, that each person is going to have to learn enough about their own depression to learn, what do I need to learn? What am I going to need to acquire if I'm going to get past this? 
And trying to do that on your own is possible, but it's tough. Having somebody on the outside, you know, get to know your strengths and get to know your vulnerabilities is is really valuable. Oh, fantastic. I want to make sure that people can get a hold of the information that you discussed in the broadcast. So if you've got a website, could you just let us know your website? The website is yapco.com. It's spelled Y-A-P as in pepper, K-O.com, yapco.com. And when people go to the website, there is an opportunity to sign up to receive a newsletter that once a month or so I share new information, new research that might be relevant to people. Uh, There are already many newsletters and blogs posted on the website that people can review information. As I mentioned earlier, one of those is how to choose a therapist. I'm not available for therapy. As I said, I'm retired, but I'm certainly willing to provide information for how people can choose and get the help that they need and uh, other related websites that people might find valuable. There we go. That's all we need to say. There we go. Yapka, just before we go, I got one final question. I'll squeeze it in. I hope you don't mind. (laughs) Sure. I know you're on a tight schedule. If you were 18 again, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself that uh, get choosier about what I learn and how I learn it. And I, I think I spent more time than I should have getting schooled in things that I knew weren't effective, things that were theoretically elegant, but they didn't really work in real life. And I wish I had come to that sooner. When you go to school and you're a new student and, you know, these are the professors and these are the people who are the learned people, theoretically, um, to, to spend years learning an arbitrary language uh, and then somehow thinking that that's really the way the world works uh, was, I think, an unfortunate waste of time. So, um, you know, I, I think I, I could have been more active in the learning process. I think I could have reached some of the conclusions I reached a lot sooner if I had been less compliant and more uh, more questioning. And so if I was going to tell myself anything at 18, it would be just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. And how very important the skill is of being able to step outside yourself long enough to examine, is there really evidence for this? And uh, getting good at gathering information, getting good at weighing information is a skill I wish I'd come to years earlier than I did. Here's where education, I mean, this is just a curious thing. Does education turn you into a believer or does it turn you into a thinker? And unfortunately, a lot of the educational experiences I had really pushed being a believer much more than being a thinker. Uh, I'm glad eventually I rejected that, but it it took a while. Dr. Michael Yapko, I want to thank you so much for giving me the time out of your busy day. I know it's been a squeeze to get us in, but I've really appreciated it. And I know the listeners will really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for asking me to do this. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Dr. Michael Yapko, clinical psychologist, giving us hope and direction on finding a way out of depression. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform, 
and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America. Thank you.